Well, I apologize. I got a cold like a week ago, so my voice is kind of there. So I'm going to try not to talk really loud. I think I talk really loud normally. So I'm going to try to hold it back so that my voice lasts, but we should be fine. Well, um, I was asked uh, to teach on the doctrine of God, and I appreciate the opportunity. Um, The goal, I think, for the next couple of weeks as we speak about the doctrine of God will be to try to to marry up the the sort of heady theology and doctrine with the actual application and the doing of life and devotion. Doctrine and devotion, right? Uh, And ultimately, the goal is to understand more about God. Which, if you really think about it, is kind of ridiculous that as we learn more and more about God, that I would presume to tell you about him, or that you would be able to actually understand anything about him. We'll talk about that more, though. It's kind of paradoxical. Uh, The plan, though, is uh, I've been given three weeks. Um, Thank you. I I was really worried. How am I going to squeeze all this into two weeks? Um, The first week, this week, we'll be talking about the doctrine of God, big picture, zoomed out. Week two, we'll zoom in uh, more closely and we'll look at some specific attributes of God and we'll talk about how those attributes have been viewed in the past, um, how some people have disagreed with those attributes and the way that we would formulate them and how it affects us in our day-to-day lives. And then the third week, the final week, um, we'll be talking about the Trinity but we'll be talking about it through the lens of a story, which is the story of the Council of Nicaea, the first great heretical issue that the church faced and how the church fathers came through it and and formulated for us the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, And so before we start, I really do kind of want to think about this doctrine versus devotion, theology versus experience, and ask, are they in tension? Sort of a just a theoretical question, are the two in tension? I feel like at times, or frequently, um, you kind of get this one or the other. It's either black or it's white, it's binary, it's on or it's off. You either really like theology, this really heady, theoretical, philosophical stuff on the one hand, you're one of those people, or you're on the other side over here where it's like, look, that's all well and good, but I have a life to live and a family to deal with and a job to work at, and I need to know in my own devotional life, how do I live this out? Um, The question is, does it have to be black and white? Is there a hard line between the two? And if you're just sort of this cerebral, linear thinker who likes to think about things a lot, does that automatically put you in the camp that will, like, you like theology, and that's great. And if you're more, like, I don't know, emotional or in a good way. Um, If you care about doing and loving and reaching out and walking the Christian walk, does that automatically put you in the other camp? Right? I think it's a fair question, right? I've had this issue myself because sometimes I feel like I'm on one side or the other. I'll sit down with this really heavy theology book and I'm like, I know I'm supposed to like this and it's supposed to be awesome. But then whoever wrote it, like, wrote it in the most boring way possible. If it's the most amazing topic, how could you make it this boring? Um, And at other times, I sit down with this devotional book, you know, that's written by one of these, I don't know, a a pastor or someone who just really is into, I don't know, fill in the blank. But even then, I'm like, "Ah, okay, but I need something more, right? And so I have a quote, I think, which may be helpful before we start, and it's by C.S. Lewis. He wrote it, um, I don't know, 70 years ago. And he's talking about this issue. Doctrine versus devotion. Theology versus experience. Which one is it? And he says, in this age, in our age, this is the 1950s, I think, the need for knowledge is particularly pressing. And I will not allow a sharp division between two kinds of books, doctrine books, and devotion books. He's not going to say that they have to be separated. 
For my own part, he says, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. It's kind of strange. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await us. Could it be that a doctrinal or a theology book could be more devotional than a devotional book? I believe, he goes on, that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. He liked to smoke pipes. Um, <clears throat> this is ultimately what I'm hoping, because we will be talking about some rather, you know, theoretical, if you will, things about God, and we're going to attempt to marry it up with devotion. What does this mean for our lives? My hope is that we will all, like, grit our teeth if we need to and pull out the pencil in the hope that my desire is that the heart will sing at the end of this three weeks because we've learned more about who God is, our God, our Redeemer, our Creator. We'll learn more about Him and I think that as our heart fills up with this knowledge, that it will overflow then into devotion and life and wanting to love our neighbor because of what God has done. Does that make sense? All right, so let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together to speak about you. Um, and I am completely unworthy and incapable of doing this. But because of the revelation that you have given us through your Son, we can approach you boldly and we ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may know who you are and that it may continue to conform us into the image of Christ. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> I know this is not the first week that we're doing this series, and we are using this book by Paul David Tripp. Um, and I want to read the first paragraph before we begin, as we begin, uh, of chapter 3. There is only one true God. He is infinite in his being and perfection. He is invisible without body parts or passions. He is unchanging immense, eternal, and beyond human comprehension. Note that. He is almighty, most wise, and most holy. He is completely free and absolute, working everything according to the counsel of his own unchanging and righteous will and for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and long-suffering, he is abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. He rewards those who diligently seek him. He is just and fearsome in his judgment. He hates sin and will not clear the guilty. This leads me, we're on number one, who is God? We've got three points, who is God, how God reveals himself, and how do we respond? It should be on your handout. Does anyone need a handout? No? If you need one, let me know and I'll grab you one. God is the creator. I, I would hope we would all agree upon that. Uh, the Bible begins, the very first words in the beginning, God, before the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Later in the Bible, it will say he, invent, he created all things visible and invisible. So not just the things you see and can feel. He also uh, created the invisible world. Right? And the creator... Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I don't like really drawing pictures of God because I don't know what he looks like, but just for your own edification, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay. And then the Creator, who it says here is infinite, 
perfect, invisible, without passions or changing emotions. He's eternal. He's beyond comprehension. He's almighty, most wise, and most holy. Created the world, the things visible and invisible, and he created you and I. We are creatures. That makes sense. God, the creator, created creatures. And this leads us really to the first distinction that I want us to, to, to wrap our heads around. Is that between the creator and the creature, historically it has been said that there is a giant, uncrossable, unfathomably deep chasm, which cannot be crossed over by the creature. If I make a chair, and it's a beautiful chair, and it's really comfortable to sit on out of wood, does the chair know me? No. It's kind of funny to think about. No, it doesn't know me. I made it. It can't know me. What if I make a wooden figurine of myself? A bobblehead. Let's say I make a wooden bobblehead and it moves its head like this. And it looks a lot like me. I have a big head. I have to wear really big hats. Um, Does it know me? Does the bobblehead that looks like me know me? Of course not. That's funny, right? This creator who has made us, who is all the things that we are not, I am bound by space and time, right? Uh, Recently I had to get on a plane from Orlando to come to here, and I was telling Jesse, I wish I could teleport. When will they invent that? Because this is miserable, sitting in this airport. I have to be in one place at one time. I am bound. God is infinite. He transcends both space and time. He's all-knowing. My knowledge is, is very limited. And so, does it make sense that we would be able, as creatures, to somehow get to God and get all up in that circle and know Him? Not really, right? And this is why, historically, there has been this massive, huge, imagine this times infinity, because it really is, distinction between the Creator and the creature, which we are unable to cross. Now, I want to clarify that this is not the exact same thing as when, when our first parents in the garden sinned, right? And the relationship between God and humanity was broken. This is not the exact same thing. This is a, uh, this is a difference because the Creator who is all-powerful and can do all things has made things like us, and we, we can't access that, right? That, the, other, the distinction that's made because of sin and the fall is slightly different, and we, we'll probably talk about that at some point. So, there's the creator, there's the creature, and there's a distinction. And we cannot cross over the creator-creature distinction. Does this make sense? Tracking? Tracking like an eight-track tape, as they say in the Marine Corps. It's really corny. Paul writes to Timothy, and he alludes to this, right? In 1 Timothy 6, he's writing this, this praise God, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. See, he starts to sort of capture that inaccessibility. We can't get to God. We can't see God because he dwells in inapproachable light. And this is something that people have thought about for thousands of years. A thousand years ago, uh, before the Catholic Church was the Roman Catholic Church, it was just one, really, kind of universal church, Anselm, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury back then, thinking about what Paul just said, wrote, Truly, Lord, This is the inaccessible light in which you dwell. 
For truly there is nothing else which can penetrate through it so that it might discover you there. Truly, I do not see this light since it is too much for me. And yet, whatever I see, I see through the light. Just as an eye that is weak sees what it sees by the light of the sun, but it can't look at the sun, you are the supreme and inaccessible light. So Anselm is saying this, God, you dwell in inaccessible light. I can't look at you. I can't even see it. But all the things that I do see and understand, I only see and understand them because of your light. And just in the same way that I can't stare at the sun, right? I mean, it's, it's an analogy, right? You can stare at the sun. It's not recommended. I don't know. Um, in the same way that you don't want to look at the sun, but you see everything by the light of the sun, God's light The Creator is the one who enables us to see and to know and to understand. But how? Okay, so we're moving now to... I like this board. We're moving on to point number two. How then does God reveal Himself? Well, the first two, general and special revelation, I believe were spoken about last week. Right, we're talking about the doctrine of Scripture. So I'm going to sort of breeze over these, since you already have these categories, but it's good to be reminded. General revelation is what Scripture speaks about when it says, for example, in Psalm 8, um, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. When I look at the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've put in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? General revelation, nature, creation. Around us, some people have said it's like signposts that point us to God. It's like, hey, look at me. I'm amazing. Someone amazing-er must have made me. No, that's not a word. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above declares his handiwork. Still talking about general revelation. And the Apostle Paul, again, refers to this in Romans 1, where he says, For God's invisible attributes, in particular, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made around us. Everyone can see the fact that God is powerful from the things around us so that they are without excuse. So this is the limitation of general revelation. In that, general revelation, or nature, the things that God has made, show to us and reveal to us that there is a Creator. And it leaves us without an excuse when later we suppress that knowledge and say, no, I don't want to worship you. I'd rather worship the things you've made and myself, frankly. And it leaves them without excuse. What it does not do is provide enough knowledge for fallen human beings to be saved. Staring at, I really like Monterey, the Monterey Bay. It's beautiful. When the sun finally comes out in the morning, you can see it, right? It's beautiful and it does declare the glory of God. What it does not do is tell me that God is triune. Or that the Son has come in a human body and been crucified for my sins. It doesn't tell me that. And so the second way that God reveals himself to us is through special revelation. right? Uh, this, I think, is, is very well put in Hebrews 1 long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so this second category, special revelation, is Scripture. God has revealed, beyond general revelation, the way to salvation. The plan of reconciliation for those of us, all of us, 
who have fallen away because of our first parents' sin, Adam and Eve, and because of our own sin. God reveals himself to us through general revelation and through special revelation. And the 1689 Confession of Faith, which is pretty solid, in chapter 1, it captures this beautifully. You'll find that if you ever take a gander at the 1689 Confession of Faith, it's going to walk through every single one of these things we talk about in Sunday school, systematically. It's going to tell you what Scripture is. It's going to tell you what general revelation is and special revelation It's kind of a really nice, condensed, boiled-down, little thin book that you can look at. It's amazing. Although the light of nature, talked about nature, general revelation, and the works of creation and providence manifest the goodness, the wisdom, and the power of God so much that we are left without an excuse, it is not enough, it is not sufficient to provide that knowledge of God which is necessary for salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at different times and in different ways to reveal himself and to declare his will to the church through Scripture. All right? That's pretty straightforward, right? We've got general revelation and we have special revelation. Now, before we move on and we start to get into the meat of this and how do we tie this into our lives? I want to open up the floor for questions, briefly, on the things we've spoken about thus far. The creator, the creature, the distinction, really anything that's under points one and two. Uh, are there any questions? Is there anything that's unclear that I can attempt to clarify at this point? If not, that's fine. There's more Question time. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was worried that if I had a bunch of little stick people, you couldn't see it. So so the big not stick person is like representative of all the little stick people. I, I see now how that can be very confusing. Okay. No, there's not like, that's not the Nephilim or anything like that. Like Goliath, right? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> okay. Yes, thank you for That makes sense. Okay, well then we're going to move along and we will come to another uh point very soon where we can have a bit more um I'll have some questions for you to answer to see if you want to answer them. Okay, so let's talk about fighting. Um and I want to talk about this next point which is accommodation. Right, It's a doctrine of accommodation, which is going to be crucial as we move forward, probably for this entire Sunday School series, beyond even me, for understanding how we're supposed to read the Bible right, and how we're supposed to understand God. When Caleb was younger, like three or four, he's, he's eight now, he was like a little tiny guy, you know, like up to my knee, and I really wanted to fight with him and like wrestle on the living room floor, right? The problem is I was way, like, way stronger than him, and he knew that I would beat him. So the only way I could get him to attack me is if I would turn my back and get on my knees and cover my hands with my eyes with one hand and promise that I'd like leave one arm behind my back when he attacked me, you know, and that I wouldn't get off my knees. And then when I assumed the position, then he would like charge me out of nowhere and like tackle me and try to like you know, beat me. I don't have that problem anymore. He like He's like a mountain goat. He like sprints at me at the most inopportune times and just like headbutts me as hard as he can. But back then, I had to make accommodations for Caleb because the size difference was so much and the difference in strength that in order for us to interact in that way, I needed to come down to his level. Does that make sense? I accommodated myself to his level of strength. And this is something that throughout history, uh, Christians and the church fathers have applied to Scripture, the doctrine of accommodation. Now, briefly, 
Um, the Paul Tripp book is good. If there's a spectrum between devotional literature and theological, like, hardcore Herman Bovink on one side, I think that Paul Tripp is, like, over here somewhere, right? Very accessible, not getting in too deep, and that's great. This book by Matthew Barrett called None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God, is all about the doctrine of God, and it is so well written. It is so easily accessible, and he's Baptist, so why not, right? He's, we, gotta, we need someone on our team. All right, and he's great. I mean, he's amazing. Um, I want to read to you a quote about accommodation. The infinite one has stepped across the canyon, the separation between the creator and us. He picked up the dirt and formed man and woman according to his own image. After forming humankind in his image, God then spoke. That's right, the infinite, transcendent, incomprehensible God used words. And these words revealed not only who he is, but what duty God requires of humans. Okay. Now this is moving into the accommodations. He speaks about the church father origin who used the example of how a father speaks to his two-year-old child. Uh, do they speak to them, or, okay, parents, when you speak to your little children, do you speak to them like I'm speaking to you now? Hopefully not, right? I mean, if you saw me speaking to Charlotte, she's three, you would be like, who are you, right? I, I don't talk to her like this. I talk to her like a little baby, you know, because she's a little baby. And so what Origen is saying is that God speaks to us in, in an example inarticulately, right? He, like, he speaks to us as if we're a little child because as creations, what if he told us exactly how he created the cosmos and exactly who he is and exactly how the Trinity works internally? Would we be able to comprehend it? No, absolutely not. And so he accommodates himself to us so that we can understand him and who he is. John Calvin also compared God to a nurse caring for an infant. The nurse bends low to speak a language that the infant can understand. And Calvin called this the nurse lisping to the baby. Right? This, in a way, is a picture of how God communicates with us. He uses accommodated language. And finally, let's talk about analogy. Okay, can we have, because of all the things we've talked about, who God is, who we are, can we have perfect knowledge of God? It, it would seem that the answer to that is no. No, we can't. Um, can we, can I, completely comprehend God? I've only got two ways of knowing him, right? General revelation and special revelation. Can I comprehend him absolutely, completely? No, I can't. But God, we, we have analogies then, right? Um, he uses the example in this book. Again, I think it's helpful. If someone were to say, for example, uh, you're, you're eating ice cream with your friends, right? And you take a bite of your ice cream, whatever ice cream you like. And you say, man, that is so good, I've died and gone to heaven. Have you literally died and gone to heaven? No. Are you somehow disrespecting God by saying that ice cream is just as good as all of the glories in heaven? No. What you mean is, though, that this ice cream is so good that maybe it's just like a little, little, little bitty taste of the amazingness that we will someday experience in heaven. Does that make sense? That's an analogy. And so in the same way, even when God speaks to us uh, through special revelation, through his word, he's not giving us everything. I mean, how much do we really know about heaven? Um, I'm hoping that we'll know a lot more when we show up. All right? Does that make sense? And now we'll, we'll move on to the next portion of questions. I actually have, I think, well-formulated questions for you. Uh, I, Again, reading from David Tripp's book. 
Few believers suffer from a God who is too big. But many suffer from a God who is sadly too small. We all have to take care that our limited ability to conceive or imagine does not restrict our theology or our understanding of God and His glory. We cannot allow ourselves to hold a theology or a doctrine of God that shrinks God down to a manageable size. Now my question is this. Um, in what ways, two questions really, and, and think about it, you can interact with one or the other. In what ways do people suffer from viewing God as too small? How is that potentially a problematic thing? If we think that God is too small, and inversely, how do we suffer from an understanding of God that's too big? He said that not many people suffer from this, but some do. The question I have is, can God be too big? And um, and how does that affect us negatively? So the questions there are two. In what ways do people suffer from a God that's too small? And in what ways do people suffer from a God that is too big? Now, I'm going to give us an example real quick, and then the microphone will be passed around, so be thinking. Uh, and it's, again, Paul David Tripp uses an example. If we use the term father for God, he uses the term for himself. Jesus used the term when he said, our father who art in heaven. We're supposed to call God father. If we don't have this understanding of accommodation and analogy, and we think that it's like one-to-one, I know my dad, right? He lives in Florida. That's what a dad is. That's what a father is. So that's what God is, just maybe bigger and invisible and like maybe super far away, right? But this can be problematic. I'm sure you would agree. Not all of us, know our fathers. Uh, for some of us, if we do have a father, our relationship with our father is broken. Uh, maybe our father was very heavy-handed. Maybe he was abusive. Maybe he was a pushover. Maybe he didn't do too well at work over the course of his working career and he did his best Maybe he was a workaholic and he made tons of money and he totally ignored you. Do you see how this can sort of drift into thinking, well, it's a one-to-one thing. God's a father. I've got a father. So I know God. Okay, so I'm going to open it up to questions. Uh, And the questions were, again, in what other ways, or you can talk about the father one, do we get into trouble if we think that God is too small or if we think that God is too big? I think the way I see it, it's from talking from experience, talking from experience, I think trying to comprehend the actual size of God is what puts us in this, puts me in a predicament is trying to compare him or, or trying to see how big he is or how small or where he is. And it's just trying to comprehend, which I can't. You know, you can't. Trying to do that is where I think I fall short. Mm, yeah. And uh, just got to really focus on what he reveals to us yeah. through Scripture or um, through speci- special revelation. Yeah. And keep it at that and not try to build it up even more. And that's, Absolutely. I think that's where a lot of it, The um, I don't know what word to look for, but I think that's where the, the fall happens. Yeah, I think that's a great point, is going beyond what's revealed. Should we go beyond what God has revealed to us about himself? I think the answer would be, based upon our cool picture back here, the answer would be no, because anything he's revealed to himself, to us about himself, is really as far as we can go. What am I going to do? 
What am I going to like cross over this massive gap between the invisible creator and me and figure out what's going on in there? I, I can't do that. I'll just be making stuff up, right? Did, did you have a question? Kevin has a... <clears throat> Um, he, uh, God does invite us to seek him and seek him with all our heart. So he wants us to get to know more and more and more and more about him. So the fact that there's something ineffable about him that we can't ever discover shouldn't prevent us from, you know, reaching out and discovering all we can, Mm -hmm. all that he's revealed and being content in that. I think maybe, um... If we sense that God is too big to care about our small problems, that's a that's a misunderstanding of God in Him approaching us. Or if we think that He's not able to affect things, that the world is out of control, and we end up worrying about that, then God is too small to us. Yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah, and so that, I think, was an answer to kind of both questions, right? Um, I'm not really sure. Uh, I don't think he explains what he means about few people suffering from a God who is too big. But that's what my mind went to as well. If God is so far away and completely inaccessible, what does he care about me? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and of course, Scripture shows us that he cares for us. He keeps us as the apple of his eye. He hides us under the shadow of his wings. Does he really have wings? No. God is spirit, right? That's a commendated language, okay? Um, and yes, I think often it's maybe it's problematic and it's it shows itself when we think that God is really too small by the way we worry over, oh man, that person got elected. Oh, whole world is just falling apart now. Um, I mean, I've been there, right? Anything else? We have time for one more. Jesse? I think um, uh, the danger of making God too small, I think what a lot of people do, um, and we've talked about this, how a lot of people are not atheists, they say they believe in God, but what they really believe in is a God of their own imagining. And so I think that's a way that we make God too small by um, making him more like us. Like this is the kind of God I, what I think God should be like or um, what I would expect him to be like just because that's how I am or that's how my mind works. Um, Which obviously then we get all kinds of really false and dangerous ideas about God. So I think that's how we make God too small, sort of. Thank you. And I'm I'm going to move on. I'm sorry. We'll come back. There's another question time, okay? And I really want to move on because that was a perfect transition, but I don't think she knew where I was going. So this is just how amazing our marriage is on full display. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. So moving on to point three, how do we then respond? This is kind of where the rubber meets the road, I think. Um, And and really what I'm hoping we can do is think about, now that we've kind of gotten a big picture about how there's the creator, there's the creature, we can't access him, but he's revealed himself to us in the world around us and in scripture, while at the same time we can't really, really know him in himself outside of scripture because, um, you know, and he uses analogies to help us. He accommodates his language to us. He talks to us like we're little babies so that we understand. All right. So moving on, Paul Tripp then says, and I think it's insightful that everyone you know and everyone you will know um, and every movement or business or corporation you see is ultimately acting the way they're acting, saying what they're saying, doing what they're doing, based on what they think about God. Okay, And he says in particular, I think it's helpful, 
how they would take something like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, where did God come from? What do you mean? In the beginning, he was already there. It's the wrong question, right? But based on what people believe about this, it will determine how they react. It will determine who they give their money to, uh, the way they live their lives, the movies they watch, the people they associate themselves with. Um, and then Paul Tripp goes on in his, in his book um, to lay out several categories of people, I think to help us understand the people around us, and then to help us understand ourselves and how we should respond to what we've just talked about, the doctrine of God. And I want to go with something slightly different, which is three paradigms, which are in your little handout. And I'm going to go back to my picture because I think it's helpful. The first paradigm that's on your handout, I believe, is... Well, first let me say this. Uh, in the 60s, there was a really, really famous German theologian and philosopher who was like the court theologian for JFK. His name was Paul Tillich. I think like Paula White was the court theologian for Trump most recently. I don't know. I'm sure, you know, typically administrations have these religious leaders or whatever that they sort of rely upon and they go to for answers. Well, for JFK, it was Paul Tillich. Brilliant. And Paul Tillich said this, every single religion in the world falls into one of two camps. Falls into one of two camps, right? And the first camp, he says, is the stranger we never met. It's the stranger we never met. And what the stranger we never met means is this, that obviously there's us down here, but up here past this thing, there's nothing. It's just us. And we know that. I mean, science has proved that to us. It's ridiculous to think that there's some personal deity up there who's helping you out and listening when you pray in your closet. And even if there is, he's a stranger. And we've never met him. And we never will meet him. So who cares? This is atheism and deism. Deist, a deist, was someone like uh, Thomas Jefferson. Hey, I'm going to cut out literally the miracles out of my New Testament, because we know that doesn't happen. Okay? We know that doesn't happen. And even if there is a God who created the world, he's not coming in and talking to us. And then on the other side, you got someone like Richard Dawkins, who's like a militant atheist, who's like, no, there can't be anything else out there. It's just us. These all fall into the first category, which is the stranger we never met. The second category that you have on there is basically people who say this. There is, there is someone up there. There is. And he is so, or he, she, it, is so close to us that this is gone. And really the problem is that we've just fallen away from God. We're far away and we need to get back. How do we get back? I don't know. Transcendental meditation? Right? The world is full of this universe, right? The universe is going to get us through this. Um, reincarnation. When I die, my spirit will be released and it will just go back into the unity of God. Have you ever met anyone like this? They're, yeah, they're all over the place. They're, they're like spiritual mystics, right? And they say there is no distinction 
We just need to overcome this estrangement. Overcoming estrangement. There is a deity, there is a God, and we just got to get back to him if we just try hard enough. If we just do the right things, we'll get back to God. Okay, those are the first two groups. And Paul Tillich says every single religion falls into either the stranger we never met or overcoming estrangement. There's a, 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 a theologian named Michael Horton. He actually lives in town. And he says no. There's a third category. And the name of that third category is, and this is the category into which only Christianity falls, meeting a stranger. And meeting a stranger tells us that yes, there is a huge gulf between us and God. That we can't get to him. And he is a stranger and estranged from us because of the sin of our first parents and our own daily sins. And we can't do a thing to access him. But this stranger, in the second person of the Trinity, has suddenly broken through... Okay, this is... Well, okay. And now he came, and he was on earth in flesh and blood, born in a manger. And John says, we have seen him. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. And so you see, while we cannot, it is true, cross over this divide to the Creator. He has come down to us and met us here. Now, I think <clears throat> it is possible to have heard versions of this story so frequently that sometimes, and it's not, a, it's not like, it's just, it happens. We're busy people. You know, and we have to live and buy clothes and buy food, that this story tends to just kind of like get, I don't know, tamed. Like, oh yeah, Jesus meek and mild. That's great. Blonde haired, blue eyed Jesus in the picture at the, you know, the whatever local church. And I think it can be helpful specifically with the doctrine of God to one, understand who God is and the absolute difference between him and us. Not only that, but the rebellion and the treachery that we commit every day. And that he still, God came into the world to take your sin. And then what's crazy is he dies, takes your sin, gives you his righteousness, and then he says, I'm returning to the Father. Right? That sounds really sad. Like, I'm going back. But I am going to send a helper. And now the Holy Spirit has come and indwelt and sealed everyone who heard and believed. A down payment, a guarantee that you and I will one day live with him forever. This, I think, is at least one of the ways, I'm not going to say the only way, one of the ways in which the doctrine of God helps us to understand the absolute magnitude of the incarnation of Christ and the life that we now have in him. And now, I will open it for questions.
I can make it really awkward. I don't care. Sir, it's coming. Well, it's not really a question. I'm sorry. I just was thinking about how um, uh, knowing uh, our fallenness or I guess holding on to a strong doctrine of sin in some sense, we sometimes make the jump that um, uh, in in our fallenness, in our sinfulness, uh, not only do we have a distorted view of who God is, but we have a distorted view of what our relationship with God looks like. And so I think that can um, then influence, is God too big or is God too small? Especially when we are faced, you know, every moment with our fallenness, with our sinfulness. And so for some of us, God becomes very big and um, we're overwhelmed by our sin. Um, We face sort of constant condemnation. We don't um, have anywhere to go. We're sort of locked into a sort of shame cycle, whatever. And for a lot of us, maybe God is very small and we can justify uh, our sin because we forget that our relationship has been restored in Christ, our Redeemer, um, and that we have actively the Spirit whom we live this new life with. And so I think that's that's healthy to, to know is that um, when we have those perceptions of God being too big, God being too small. Um, We also have an active uh, agent in the Spirit, the person of the Spirit, um, indwelling, helping us to recalibrate, confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's, there's There's a realization that God can be too big or too small, but God is um, for me in Christ Jesus. Um, And that sort of reshapes that relationship. But we need that every day. That's why we need the gospel every day. Thanks, Nevin. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And it may lead lead us back full circle to the doctrine or devotion. Doctrine or devotion. Devotion. Is it is it how I feel, and do I need these feelings every day in order to feel like a fulfilled Christian, or do I need to be sitting down with this, you know, giant tome and reading about something I can barely understand, you know, because it was written 400 years ago? And I, I well, for one. Those two extremes, sometimes it feels like those are the two options. It's like one or the other. I, I will tell you, there are books like this or other means that are incredibly accessible for you and I. Um, you know, written within the past 10 years, and they talk about things like this. So it, it doesn't necessarily need to be so extreme. But I think it's worth... Uh, Remembering, and I'm sure you've all experienced this if you're like older than like three, maybe. That emotions wane, they wax and wane, you know. And so, I really do appreciate when someone says you need to desire God, you need to really want to do this. You need to feel love so much that it just happens, right? And I'm like, yes, that sounds awesome. Okay. And there are times, I believe, and this is why I think it's both, not either or, there are times when those moments do strike. You know, it's like, wow, this is amazing. This all makes sense, kind of. You know, it's like, I get it. And then there are other times, maybe I'm the only one who's bipolar, when it's like, what am I doing with my life? What is happening? I can't go to work one more day. This is ridiculous. Like, if I didn't have a family to take care of, I would quit and just like fly away somewhere and never come back. Maybe I'm the only one who's ever thought that. And then we begin to question, well, wait a minute, I don't feel this desire. 
I don't feel this love that I'm supposed to feel. I don't have this changed heart and I never struggle with temptation and I never struggle with doubt and I never struggle with sin. That doesn't really uh, define me as of, you know, whatever, a week ago or two weeks ago or whatever, or today. That is when I think it can be helpful because at that point, you know, it's like, well, what do I do? I need to find some solid ground for my feet somewhere. I can't just like stop being a Christian because I don't feel good today, right? What is the solid ground? I think that knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt because he's revealed it to us in his word, who he is, who we are, what he's done for us, and it's not affected by how you feel. It doesn't matter, really, what you feel. I mean, did Stephen feel awesome when they were stoning him to death? Like, no. I know that's like ad absurdum, but we don't always feel awesome. You know, you don't feel great the second you get into a car crash. <laughs> but God is who he is, and we are who we are, and he has revealed himself to us in time and space. In history. And so I think that is helpful. Yes, sir. Um, I guess within the same topic of general special revelation and God being big or small, um, one of the things that sometimes I struggle with is uh, reading certain uh, theological books or doctrinal books. seems like the theologians uh, make it, make certain topics overly complicated. They have like 15 points and then 15 points under those 15 points. Um, so then I, then I question, well, is this, is that making God too big? Um, and then, you know, some responses are like, well, yeah, God is, you know, uber complex and complicated and we should try to figure him out or even, you know, try to do that. But, but at the same time, I'm, I'm wondering if we've crossed a line somewhere. Yeah. Um, are there examples that you've encountered, if that's true, or I, I, I don't know if... Yeah. Um, maybe I'm just like a really bad seminary student, but um, I've been told that like Herman Bovink is the man, right? And he's got this four-volume, if you put them all beside each other, it's like this. And one of them is like 700 pages on the doctrine of God. And I'm with you. I read it and I'm just like, I got other stuff to do. Like, you know? So, no, I don't think you're alone um, in thinking that at times not every resource out there for understanding Scripture and the Bible is necessarily the right resource at the right time for the right person. Yes. I'm going back to the topic that this this whole series is, and it's the doctrine for life. And I think, you know, we focus on things that we know and things that we feel. There's a third aspect, what we do, mind, will, emotions. And God has given us things to do. Even when I don't fully understand what's going on, even when I don't feel like doing it, he says, you know, it, it, it boils it down to a pretty simple thing. Follow me. Jesus says, follow me. Okay, I can hang on to that. I can do that. Follow you where? You know, as he reveals in Scripture, and I can, you know, overcome the not wanting to do something by the simple command and the response to that. So when we think, how do we respond? I think um, it's my will con being conformed to what he directs me to do, and then the other things fall into place. As I, you know, as I do, as I yield myself to him, I understand better what he wants me to know. And I respond in my heart with joy to what he's doing, even when it's difficult. Thank you. All right, that's it. That's time. Um, okay, so if you are interested in the book, let me know and I'll show you what book it is. If you have any questions, come talk to me.
The plan next week is we're going to talk about attributes. Like, let's kind of dive into the weeds, and then I'll tell you guys a story on the third week, and it's going to be awesome for me. Um, Thanks for hanging in there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for sending your Son for us. Help us to understand that our neighbors and those that we encounter every day who do not know you are ultimately wrestling with similar questions. What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? God, I ask that you would help us not to be defensive, God, that we would look for opportunities to speak to them about you who we are so far away from and yet you've come to us in your Son. So I ask that you would uh, be with us today, that you would bless the sermon and the service, um, and that we would learn more about you. In Jesus' name, amen.